the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ezekiel. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. God does the impossible, and if nothing else today, I want you to leave here with the confidence that God does what He says. God is faithful to all His promises, and He does what otherwise looks impossible to us. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in Him are yes and amen. And what God did for the nation of Israel is a harbinger of things still to come. Because on the timeline of events that Ezekiel writes about is the Battle of Armageddon and the Millennial Kingdom. Isn't it great when everything goes just the way you had planned? You had set out to do something, even predicting that it would happen or play out the way it did, and you're relieved and even surprised that it turned out so well? Well, today, Pastor Gary touches on the fact that things are predicted by God come to pass. So even though it's amazing to see how it works out in His timing and will, it's also not surprising because He prophesied about it beforehand. God's plans will happen. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, as he continues his message, Israel and the End Times. Point number one for you note-takers as we talk about Israel in the end times and specifically today about the reestablishment of the state of Israel. Number one, God denounces the nations that overtake the land of Israel. The Jewish people are the only people on earth who have been given title deed by God to certain real estate on the earth. And when other people try to confiscate that land, God will rise up in anger against those nations. That's why he calls it my land there in verse 5. And he says that those who take it will incur, verse 6, my jealousy and my fury. Now, just so that we understand a little history here related to Israel as a nation and the Jewish people as a people, God brought about the Jewish race out of nothing. There were no Jews until God providentially decided that one Gentile by the name of Abraham, Abram as he originally was named, would be the source, would be the genesis of a people that did not yet exist. And God tapped him as this Gentile pagan worshiper, Abraham was, living in the land of the Chaldeans, which is ancient Mesopotamia, which means the land between the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. This guy's hanging out in Iraq. He's a Gentile. He worships pagan gods. And God appears to him, and God speaks to him, and God promises, and God makes a covenant with him that out of his seed will come a race of people that up to this point did not exist. 
It was God's providential thing. And by the way, he selected someone that was way past his prime and his wife, Sarah, who was way past her prime. They were past childbearing age so that when they did have a child, everybody would know this has to be a miracle because God is about establishing something clearly for his own glory so that there would be no mistake that these two people just happened to get together, had a kid, and oh, out of them came a race of people. No, God selected people whose bodies, the Bible said, were otherwise dead, biologically speaking, unable to produce. And out of them would come the child of a promise, the child Isaac. And God then birthed a nation, the Jewish people, through the line of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And then God determined that in order to provide a land for this race that he's created out of the seed of Abraham, he then gave title deed to the real estate, the area around the Mediterranean, to Abraham. And he called Abraham, leave your country in Iraq, and you make the thousand-mile journey into this land that I have promised you on oath. And thus, the Jewish people were born, and the nation itself was established in terms of a, a boundary, an area, a geographical region. Now, God gave the title deed of this land to Abraham and to the children of his promised descendants, Isaac and Jacob. I was having lunch with a Jewish rabbi in Washington, D.C. about two years ago. And he's very liberal in his theology, and he believes, despite the fact that he's Jewish, he believes that the Jews are not entitled to a homeland in Israel. And I said, with all due respect, Rabbi, God gave the title deed to the Jewish people, to your people. He says, no, he didn't. He said, it's nowhere in the Bible. I said, it is in the Bible. And I had to open his own scriptures and read to him what I'm going to read to you. This is Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants of Isaac, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, just so that we can get a perspective of what God is giving to the Jewish people entitled deed of the land, roughly 300,000 square miles. That's what God originally intended. The state of Israel is smaller than the state of New Jersey. God intended 300,000 square miles at a minimum, 300,000 square miles for the Jewish people. Today, they live in 8,130 square miles. Now, it's important to get perspective on all this. Because anytime we have a peace plan that involves land for peace, if Israel will just give up more land, then we'll give them peace. I'm skeptical for two reasons. Number one, land for peace has never worked. Number two... Giving up any more land than Israel already has is frankly unbiblical because they don't have a tenth of what God originally intended for them to have. I'm just giving you the biblical perspective of all this. In other words, God says here, it's my land on loan to the Jewish people and anyone else can live there, Palestinians included, Arabs included. Anyone else can live there, work there, play there. But those who try to take possession of it, he says here in Ezekiel 36, verse 6, will incur my jealousy and my fury. Point number two, God defends Israel for his own name's sake. Look further in chapter 36. I'm going to read verses 22 to 28. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. 
And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations. Now notice, he's talking about prophetically here. I'm going to gather all the exiles. I'll gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. In other words, the reason I think this is important to note is that God is not doing something for Israel for their sake. He's doing something for Israel for his sake. He's doing something for Israel, not for their name, but for his name. Because the fact of the matter is the Israelites had blown their testimony. That's why God says here in verse 22 that his own holy name has been profaned among the nations. Why? Because the Israelites forsook the true and living God and started to worship the idols, the pagans of the neighboring nations around them. And in this way, God says, you've profaned me before them. You have exchanged the worship of the true and living God for the worship of idols, just like your foreign neighbors. Despite that, God says, I love you. I'm going to bring you back in this land. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to restore you. And this is an amazing thing that God does on a national scale for the nation of Israel, because in a micro sense, God does the same thing for us. We sin against him. We rebel against him. And what does God do? He is patient with us. He is long suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And then he is waiting for us patiently. And with open arms, he receives us and forgives us and restores us. That's the story of God. That's the story of redemption. God does it for us on a personal level. God is doing it here for the nation of Israel on a national scale. And he's showing himself. This is a testimony of God before the nations that he is a forgiving God and that he is a restoring God, which leads us to point number three. God declares himself to all the nations through the reestablishment of Israel. Still here in chapter 36. Look at verses 34 through 36. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste of desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. In other words, here's what he's telling us. That in the 2,500 years from the time that Israel was dispersed in 586 B.C. and the temple was destroyed and following, 2,500 years, the land of Israel became desolate and barren. Now, some of Israel is desert by itself. But even what was otherwise lush fields and vineyards and the mountains would not yield fruit or vegetation. It would just become an arid wasteland because it was uninhabited and the land itself was dominated by foreign empires that didn't invest in it. And so when the Jews are dispersed over 2,500 years, the land just becomes just desolate and barren. In 1867, Mark Twain made a visit to Israel and he would later write a description about what he saw. Listen to what he wrote. Quote, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. 
There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. End quote. Mark Twain, 1867. He later would write in his writings entitled The Innocence Abroad, published in 1881. And yet, God took this otherwise desolate wasteland and made it fruitful again. When God brought the Jewish people back to this land in 1948 and since, Israel has become one of the most prosperous and prolific nations on the planet. In Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6, Isaiah prophesied, In the days to come, Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Did you know that Israel is today the number one exporter of fruit to Europe? A nation smaller than the state of New Jersey could fit within Orange County, California. All right? They are now the number one exporters of fruit in Europe. Citrus fruits are currently Israel's major agricultural export. Israel is one of the world's leading greenhouse food exporting countries. Israel exports more than $1.3 billion worth of agricultural products every year. The Jews developed drip irrigation, in case you didn't know where that came from. They developed it and turned the desert into fertile fields. And when you look at Jewish history, the emergence of this nation out of just a desolate wasteland where not only the land itself was desolate, but the people had been scattered oppressed and massacred all around the world. When you look at Jewish history, there is no other explanation for their preservation and the restoration of the Jewish people and the state of Israel as a nation, except by the divine work of the hand of God. Consider the contributions that the Jews have made to the world. Between 1901 and 2018, there have been a little more than 900 Nobel Prizes awarded in all the fields. You know, science and medicine and literature and peace, okay? A little more than 900 Nobel Prizes awarded between 2001 and 2018. Jews have taken 203 of those prizes. That represents 23% of all the Nobel Prizes awarded. 23% have been awarded to Jews for their contributions to the world. Now check this out to put it in perspective. The Jewish population today around the world, about 14.5 million. That's it, because they've been massacred and slaughtered. 14.5 million Jews in the world today. They represent, listen, 0.19% of the world's population. Jewish people, 0.19% of the world's population, but they've been awarded 23% of the Nobel Prizes. Yeah, give God praise, because that's something God did. Now, to put it in perspective a little bit, the Muslim population, which represents 23% of the world's population, Jewish population, 0.19%. Muslim population, 23% of the world's population. In the same time period from 1901 to 2018, Muslims have been awarded 12 Nobel Prizes. I'm just quoting the facts. I don't mean to be disparaging against Muslims. I'm just saying you have to recognize that something out of such proportion where the Jews have been awarded so many Nobel Prizes. It's a testimony of God working and God raising up a people that were otherwise nearly eradicated from the face of the earth, but God's providential hand has preserved them all these years. Final point, number four, God demonstrates his power and faithfulness through the reestablishment of Israel. I'm going to read from chapter 37, the first 14 verses. And chapter 37 here, the first 14 verses I'm about to read, is really the heart and soul of the book of Ezekiel. 
Because this passage talks about the dry bones in the valley. The dry bones that we're about to read here refer to the fact that the nation of Israel was otherwise dead, lifeless, and the Jewish people scattered around the world. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. In other words, Ezekiel sees these dry bones in the valley. He realizes that this is a picture of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. They are as good as dead, so to speak. They've been scattered. They've been massacred. They've been oppressed. The land of Israel itself is no longer their homeland. For 2,500 years, it's been under the domination of a foreign empire. But God showed Ezekiel something in the future that would end up being fulfilled in 1948 when God would once again regather the Jewish people from around the world. They would make what is called in Hebrew Aliyah. They would make the pilgrimage back to their homeland. The exiles in Hebrew, the Olim, would end up returning to Israel. God would begin to move in their hearts that they needed to go back to their original homeland. And so there was this stirring, this thing that began to happen by the Spirit of God despite the fact that country after country and empire after empire tried to massacre the Jewish people. You look at history, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, even in Spain under the Spanish Inquisition, in Russia under the Tsars, throughout Europe, of course, with Nazi Germany. But toward the end of the 19th century, as God began to move in the hearts of Jewish people around the world, something began to emerge called the Zionist movement. There was a man in the 1800s, his name was Theodore Herzl, and he began to be the pioneer of the Zionist movement. He was reading passages from the book of Jeremiah and passages from Ezekiel, like what we are reading today, and his heart began to stir for his homeland. And the Zionist movement was rebirthed with this idea that we need to gather the Jews. We need to begin to go back to our homeland and once again live where we used to live. 
And God began to move in the hearts of people, raising up, if you will, dead, dry bones from the valley bed and bring about a nation of people that had been scattered, oppressed, and almost massacred. And people began to return, making Aliyah to Israel. But they had no longer a common language. And in order to have a common unity as a nation, they needed a common language as a nation. So at the same time that God was moving in the heart of Theodore Herzl, in the early 1900s, God started moving in the heart of Eliezer ben Yehuda. Eliezer ben Yehuda began to be convicted that they once again needed to speak Hebrew. Because up until this point, they were either speaking Aramaic or Yiddish. Yiddish is just a European Hebrew dialect. So Eliezer ben Yehuda said, in my household, we're going to learn the ancient Hebrew language again, and nobody's going to speak but only Hebrew in my home. Started teaching his son that. Other Jewish families said, we're going to jump on the bandwagon and do the same thing. In their homes, one by one, little by little, God even rebirthed the language in the hearts of people. It was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zephaniah 3 verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. In the same time, in the early 1900s, Britain became sympathetic and supportive of the Zionist movement. And then after they, as I mentioned earlier, defeated the Ottoman Empire, kicked the Turks out of this area, British mandates started to take over the territory. 1917, the Balfour Declaration allowing for the formation of a Jewish homeland. In 1947, to the chagrin of the Arab League, of the Arab nations, the UN announced a partition resolution allowing the Jews a permanent homeland. And so another Zionist Jew from Poland, by the name of David Ben-Gurion, declared Israel's independence on May 14, 1948. And when he did, when he declared that, every neighboring nation launched an offensive attack against that territory of Israel. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Lebanon all attacked Israel. Azam Pasha, the Secretary General of the Arab League, said, quote, this will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre. Boy, was he wrong. The Jews were outnumbered, outskilled, and outarmed. They were not supported by the United States. Verbally, they were. Eleven minutes after David Ben-Gurion declared Israel's independence, President Truman supported it, but not with military armament. They were all alone. They had no support from the U.S., no support from Britain. They were forced to smuggle weapons. The Jews were mainly from Czechoslovakia. When Israel declared its independence in 1948, the Israeli army did not have a single cannon or tank. Its air force consisted of nine obsolete planes. They only had 19,000 soldiers who were fully mobilized and prepared for war against all these neighboring nations. And yet against all odds, After the dust had settled, in 1948, this small fledgling group of people with a dream and with the lead of a providential mighty hand of God emerged as the Jewish state of Israel in fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 and 37. It's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story. Friends, listen, God does the impossible, and if nothing else today, I want you to leave here with the confidence that God does what he says. And God is faithful to all his promises. And he does what otherwise looks impossible to us. Second Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. And what God did for the nation of Israel is a harbinger of things still to come. Because on the timeline of events that Ezekiel writes about is the Battle of Armageddon and the Millennial Kingdom. 
And so in this three-part series, we'll look at those other two events in parts two and parts three. But for today, let's give thanks to the Lord that he's faithful to all his promises. The radio broadcast of Cornerstone Connection comes to you from Cornerstone Chapel, located in Leesburg, Virginia. You heard Pastor Gary teach from the book of Ezekiel, one of the many prophets in Old Testament times. This book gives us a good glimpse of the seriousness of sin to God. We have a tendency to minimize the severity of sin in our lives, but not so with God. He wants us to recognize sin for the evil it is. Maybe like me, you've found yourself believing that sin is no big deal or that some sin is worse than others. Sin is sin in God's eyes, and when we refuse to address the sin present in our own hearts, He, as our righteous judge and authority, will deal with our sin according to His perfect wisdom. Friends, let's us confess our sin and turn to Jesus. Did you enjoy today's message? We hope so. Be sure to take the time to hear more messages from Pastor Gary. Head over to cornerstoneconnection.cc to get started. While you're there, check out our companion resources. These digital study guides are meant to give you even more insight into some of the studies Pastor Gary has done and are available free of charge to you. Don't miss out on this amazing resource to dive deeper into God's Word. Thanks for listening to Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not a General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.